my name is Jamin Ard. I'm a content strategist at Digital Echidna. I'm also a freelancer for a number of uh, publications, both news media and entertainment media. I've done some sports writing in my life as well, so basically I write about everything. Uh, I met Kareem in a previous life when we were both working on opposite ends of a direct selling company. I was involved with the communications and marketing aspect of that company from a corporate level, and Kareem was more involved in the distribution network. Hey, I'm uh, Samir Vasta. I uh, work as a digital advisor and digital anthropologist with the government of Ontario. Uh, I like walking a whole lot and I write a lot of letters. Uh, so if you know me, it's probably through my pedestrian advocacy or through some letter I've written to you. Uh, I met Kareem, I want to say almost 25, if not more, years ago. We were in Scouts. Um, Kareem was uh, someone I looked up to and I wanted to be like and he taught me a lot. And uh, I, I didn't know how to swim. I was a, I was a bad outdoorsman, so I learned a lot from Kareem. Uh, and, and we've just stayed in touch ever since. And uh, I've been following his career progression since then. Here's, yeah. here's the first thing I wanted to find out. So Samir, from Toronto, I know you went to school in Washington slash Georgetown. Yep. Um, and we had a chance this summer to go to Georgetown. Oh, fun. Yeah, as Minas said, let's go. Uh, before Obama leaves. <laughs> smart. <laughs> smart. It's a very smart idea. And uh, uh, and I know Jay. Yep. Uh, you know, I knew you. I knew you as someone that came from Montreal. Yep. And I just found out that you actually were... I bounced back and forth. Back and forth between Montreal and, and yep. London. Um, but my first question I'm curious about for the both of you is, um, I guess more Samir's, why London? Why London? Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a question I get a lot. I was shocked when I found out that you had moved. I go, what? <laughs> that, the, the reality is, um, there, there are two reasons why London. Yeah. The, the first is the practical reason. My wife got a job here. Yeah. Fair right? enough. And of all the opportunities that she was able to get, this one was not just the best for her career, but okay. kind of the best for where we saw our family going. Okay. But the, the second reason, and which is, which is less practical but yeah. more esoteric, is that I found in London a place where there's a ton of opportunity and potential. Yeah. And a few people doing really well at tapping that potential, uh -huh. but a lot of uh, avenues to keep doing that and support the people that are. Huh. Whereas in other cities uh, that we explored, there was already kind of either a maximization of that potential or people who were working towards that maximization. Uh, London felt fer like fertile ground to do something really great, yeah. and to work with people who were already doing things. That so were tell really me, like great. some of these, like what, what was the potential that you saw? Like I know at the end of the day, mm -hmm. whether it was potential or not, your wife was found a job. I mean, I had some say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, no, I mean it, it's 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 the power of the mid-sized city, and I've been doing a lot of reading about mid-sized cities even before coming okay. to to London. Is the idea of if you look at Toronto, it's a big city. So it has opportunities to scale, but it's not as fast and agile as you would like. Mm -hmm. And then you look at smaller cities like, you know, the kind of what we would consider small town Ontario, uh -huh. uh, like Elmer or something like that, where there, there are lots of potential to do things really quickly because they're small, you can add, but there's no opportunities to scale. Yeah. And London sat at this beautiful space where it is small enough to move quickly and have voice, but it is big enough that whatever you do, hundreds of thousands of people feel it. Huh. Right, and it's that really beautiful balance. There's of, that critical mass behind it that can put things exactly into motion. Yeah. And then, and then, and then, people like Jay who are doing who are doing the work, yeah, and engaging with that critical mass to do to do the good stuff. And yeah, that, and that's why I found like London is that place. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so, is did you create your own opportunity here, or you? 
I, I took a look at LinkedIn. You're still working with the government? I still or? am, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, so I'm working remotely. Okay. Uh, part of kind of what we're trying at the government of Ontario is a distributed workforce. Yeah. So you can have your home base in Toronto, but <laughs> people can come from anywhere. Yeah. You get the best talent from wherever they are. Yeah, yeah. And work in concert with each other because now we're connected digitally. So yeah, any, you sure. know, you could be anywhere and still be part of a team. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah. And Jay, you're working... Uh, I always found that fascinating, you know, when, when, when I, you know, when you were working here, I thought it was because, you know, the sort of the headquarters was here of, of, yeah. uh, of, of, of your job. Yep. Um, and, and so when I found out that you were leaving, I figured, okay, he's going back to Montreal. Yep. You know, a big Habs fan, I know. Yeah, yeah I am. Um, well, that you know, so, travels everywhere. So. <laughs> so, so, and, 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 then, and then you stayed. So what yep. sort of, what sort of uh, you know, keeps you anchored here? Well, so... My background is I was born in Montreal and sort of grew up there for 10 years. Came to London. My dad actually worked for 3M, and 3M's head office is in London. So okay. I spent some of my formative years here in London, and then in my post-university, I moved back to Montreal, got married. And what brought us back, really, my ex-wife and I, my now ex-wife and I, um, we were visiting my parents here. We were actually just walking through Harris Park, and we looked around and said, you know what, this is a really nice place to raise a family. There's a mm. lot of potential and opportunity for that type of lifestyle. Everything we, it, it sounds horrible, but everything we loved about Montreal, we didn't do. Like, we were running, huh. we did a list, and it's like, you know, we love the festivals. We love going to the, you know, downtown and going to the clubs and going to, you know, the street festivals that they had. But then when we looked at it, we didn't actually do it. You know, we never really did it as family. We lived a very suburban life at, at home. So we said, well, as an English writer, there's more opportunities in London. I got a job offer here. Yeah. That brought me here when I left that company. Um, I started up at Digital Echidna and have integrated myself more into downtown. I, I find, like Samir said, that London has an a lot of opportunity. I just, and you do mention there's a lot of people that are doing great things. My issue with London is that there's a lot of people that want to do great things but don't yeah. listen to each other. Yeah. Uh, and there's a very deep schism between people that are... I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say downtown because I live downtown now. Sure. I made the joke when I moved downtown sure. that my opinion matters 30% more now. Um, <laughs> but there's this almost polarization of opinion between people that are focusing on downtown and people that are looking at what's going on in the suburbs. Okay. Uh, I've lived in both. I think there's great communities on both sides of the divide, and I think what we need to do here, and I think where the real opportunity is, is getting people to listen, getting people to talk, and I mean, Samir can attest, we're going through some huge issues in London with differences of opinion of what London can be. I like the fact that London is, I think you said it's a mid-sized town. In my younger, more um, sarcastic days, I described London <laughs> as a, a mid-sized city with large market aspirations but held back by small town thinking mm, huh. I don't know if I believe that anymore um, okay. but I believe that London has an identity crisis in a lot of ways and it doesn't know what it wants to be we're chasing multiple dreams you know, I like the fact that and again Samir you can attest to this you can buy a nice house in London with a nice backyard for a reasonable amount of money that you can't do in larger markets in Toronto oh, that's sure. an attractive thing so you know, what are we chasing? Do we want to be that type of community that's inclusive for, of everybody from like two to 102? Or, you know, there's a focus on millennials and retention. And I don't know if that's realistic because we are a university town in a lot of ways. And I have sort of differing opinions on the student journey. So oh. it, it's interesting. We haven't really defined who we are yet. We're trying to get to there. 
and I think that's a challenge because we, we don't really have a vision, I don't think. And, then, and it comes down to the first thing I noticed when I first moved to London was this idea that we call ourselves the forest city, but what does yeah. the forest city really mean? It yeah. doesn't tell me anything about who we are, and, and more importantly, it doesn't tell us tell me anything about who we want to be. Yeah. Forest city. The forest yeah. city, right? Yeah. So you think, okay, that means trees. Yeah. Right? And I read somewhere that actually London doesn't even have the most forest covered <laughs> city in Ontario, right? So, I mean, so if that's how we're defining ourselves, yeah. what, what does it say about who we want to be? Yeah. Right? And, and it doesn't tell me anything. And I found that's what the gap that I found. So, how do we redefine? And I, I hate to say the word rebrand, but really yeah. start okay, thinking sure. about what is London? Yeah. And, and the joke I keep telling people is that we're the in between city and we should own that. Yes, right? I agree with you. You know, we're between Detroit and Toronto. Yep. That's a good thing. Yep. Okay. We're right in the middle of the breadbasket of Ontario. Yes. That's a good thing. So okay. we're between urban and rural. We're between Detroit and Toronto. We're between, um, you know, an older aging population and a younger uh, university population. Yeah. We're just kind of stuck in the middle. And yeah. for a lot of people, that's a bad thing. Uh, but I think we can take that and we can own it and saying we are the stuck in yep. the middle city. The branding experts will tell me how to say that nicely, <laughs> yeah. right? But we, and so, what does it mean to be somewhat to be kind of like the nexus of things and to embrace it? And exactly. that's my issue. It's like we have. I love the term in between city because we are in between so many things. Even in terms of, uh, you know, lit- the the thing about London is it's always been the test market because we are as yes, yes, yes. sort of neutral. You know, it's not too extreme on despite what you may read on Twitter. <laughs> It, the, I would say the majority of the population is fairly, you know, center left, you know, center right. There's progressive. I, uh, I don't like that word. Center. Okay. I think center is the right I, word. I, I, I would think. I think it's a fiscally conservative, socially progressive, quote unquote, city. For the most, I think people are. I, Samir's rolling his eyes. <laughs> but I think in terms, I think people are, and I say this. Maybe I'm totally wrong because I am the only clearly, purely white person at this table. <laughs> but, you know, I, I feel that it's very accepting of different cultures and lifestyles, more so than when I was younger. Um, I used to make the, the, the joke when I was younger that London is just old and white. There's still a lot of that here, but I am seeing so much more diversity of culture. I, I can't speak from a firsthand perspective of how that's being embraced. Uh, the way the, um, you know, LGBTQ community has been accepted. That, you know, I feel that it, most people want to do the right thing. I guess that's the way I want to say okay. it. Okay. But they don't want to spend the money doing it. Wow. Uh, I don't know if that's fair. Yeah. No, actually, that, that's a, that's a re- really good characterization. But I also think one of the issues we have is that we don't know what the right thing is. No, and It true. comes down to defining what the city really should be. Uh-huh. And, you know, the... the the questions we have around whether it's fixing the Springbank Dam or whether it's yeah. building rapid transit or whether it's even you know being the first city to pilot ranked ballots in Ontario. Yeah. Or, like, these are all questions that if we knew who we were, we could answer quickly. Yeah. But what I also it, think we yeah. don't listen to each other. And that's mm-hmm. the other and so that's the problem. What does we, that mean you don't you don't listen to each other? We have I find the city's very siloed. Uh, and there's some people like urban and rural? No, or? not even. Um, I would say ideologically siloed. So, and that's why I kind of jumped on the word progressive. Um, There's a group that likes to self-identify itself as progressive. My concern with that is when you say that I'm progressive, anybody that disagrees with you is automatically regressive. Right. And I don't think that's the case. Um, I don't align necessarily with everything the progressive group, the self-identified progressive group believes, but I still love London. Some people would argue that. I still think okay. there's progress. I just think there's different ways of going about it. Okay. Um, 
but our political discussion has become very polarized. So if you're not on board with rapid transit, you hate downtown and you don't want progress and you're, you want to go back to the Stone Age and you're old and you don't care. I don't think that's a healthy debate. I don't think that's a healthy way to frame arguments. And I think we, don't, we do a lot of things for show. The city loves to have big, shiny uh, touch points to say, look, we did something. It may not be the right thing. It may not be the best thing, but we've done something. But we don't listen to, say, what the mass suburbanite market may want. We don't do a good job of getting out to them. All of our public engagement tends to be downtown within a two-block radius, and it's very hard to listen to other people come downtown. Like, you know, you, we don't listen well to families that don't have the access to come downtown for a public participation meeting at 4 o'clock on a Tuesday. We don't listen well to business owners sometimes. So we need to find a better way. I think we want to do the right thing. I think sometimes we don't want to hear dissent, but we don't do a good job of creating that actual open space where you can't talk. And I think our rhetoric is actually isolating us as well, yes. right? So it's not that just we don't, we, we don't listen to each other well. It's that the words we use to speak actually alienate people. Yes. And, that, and, and that's a struggle because I think a lot of times some of us might actually have, think the same way or at least believe in the same yeah. things. Yeah. But the words that we use and the language that we use and the rhetoric that we use actually alienates people before they have the chance to jump in and say, I agree, let's work on it. And it's subtle, but we need to be better at figuring out the words. Um, and, that, and, you know, as you're saying this kind of suburban yeah. downtown, like, I just moved three months ago to yeah. suburban London. Yeah. All right? I moved, bought a nice house in the suburbs because I can afford it here, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know? And it's, it's, it's been eye-opening to me going from someone who could walk downtown yeah. to someone who has to walk to a bus stop, 15-minute walk to a bus stop yeah. for a bus that runs every 40 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And if I miss it, you know, I have to wait for 40 minutes because I can't make it home and back, yeah. <laughs> you know, in time, yeah. right? So it's that thing of kind of understanding what other people have to deal with. Yes. And then also realizing that maybe I'm an anomaly in my suburb as well. But I can't go and say the people in the suburbs need more transit because I'm not reflective of that. Yeah. But I also can't go and say the people in the suburbs don't need it because everyone has a car because I'm not reflective of that. So I have to be very careful about the languages that mm. I use. Saying this is my lived experience. Yes. Yeah. It is not necessarily your lived experience. Yeah. But let's make sure we can talk about that lived experience without generalizing and then pushing people away who might have a different lived yeah. experience. I often use the term that nobody has a monopoly on right, and unfortunately the political and social climate in London basically dismisses ideas based on who you are or what group you are perceived to affiliate with, as opposed to, I mean, one of the great things, and I think, without getting too metapolitical here, but if you look at why the Liberal Party of Canada has done well traditionally over the years, is that they've been that soft, squishy middle that will listen to the far right, they will listen to the far left, and kind of incorporate those ideas for a better solution, for good or for bad. Sure. We don't do that anymore. It's like, oh, huh. you're you're right-winger, I'm not going to listen to anything you say. You're a left-winger, well, you're obviously a tree-hugging tree hugging hippie, I'm not going to listen to anything you say. Yeah. Instead of saying, I, I've always believed, and I do it with anything I write, any of my columns, everything I write, I encourage people to come back and to challenge what I'm saying. Because if my opinion can't hold up to a challenge, if it can't be malleable to the point where if I get new information or if I get something that counters what I'm saying and I can't change my perspective or improve it, then it's not worth having. And we, and I don't think this is restricted to London. I think we're seeing it south of the border. I think we're seeing it in our federal politics now. 
people aren't willing to have their ideas challenged. They're not willing to listen to, if I'm socially left-wing and somebody that's right-wing conservative says, well, this is what I believe, I shouldn't just say no. I should say, well, let's let's see how we can incorporate this yeah. together. How do we make it better? And I think that's what you're saying. Like, We assume we know what everybody's thinking. Um, when it comes to transit, I'm not so much concerned about students getting from downtown to Western or getting from Fanshawe to downtown because I think there are ways that we can improve that and we're seeing some improvements with direct buses with more rapid oriented transit i'm more concerned about the people that when i worked at costco in the south end mm -hmm. i couldn't take a bus to costco because it stopped about a kilometer and a half away over a bridge that i would have to walk to so i had to have a car to work there we've got all these industrial areas like dr oakner opening up that aren't serviced by buses so if we want to get people to the jobs we're not doing a good job of doing that um, my previous employment, it took me seven minutes to drive there. It took me an hour to walk there. By bus, it took me an hour and a half. To me, that's not conducive. <laughs> that's not conducive to you know, getting people onto transit. And I come from an environment, when I lived in Montreal, you know, I took the train and the metro to work because it was 20 minutes from the north end of the island to the old port. If I drove, it was an hour and a half, and I had to pay like 100 and something for parking. So. You know, the convenience factor is there and we have to look at what people actually need and I don't know if we're doing that. And I, I think a lot of that also has to do with this idea of density and, and this yeah. is what, one of the one of the things I noticed about London very quickly is that it's <laughs> is that it's a it's a city that is it's a big city yep. physically. Okay. It's a small city kind of when it comes to the demographics of yes. it, right? So you're you're fitting under four hundred thousand people in a city that I don't know the exact size, but I think feels to me is as big as Toronto. Yeah. yeah, in terms of area and what we've annexed and wow. all the land grabs we've done, I think it's as big as Toronto or around that. And so, yeah. what does that mean about? And, and you know, forget this whole thing about transit. What does that mean about how people interact with yep. each other? Yep. Right? We have narrow sidewalks. Yep. We don't have pedestrian plazas. I mean, Covent Garden Market, where we're sitting right now, is an, a beautiful example of thinking about a pedestrian-focused city. Yep. But it's it's one of the few. Yeah. How, and if we really want people to engage with people who are not like them, mm -hmm. to understand how, what other people think, to understand how other people live, we need to force collision. Yep. And by forcing collision, you need to increase density, ah. you need to build up, you need to create pedestrian plazas, you need to f literally force people to bump into each other. And what's, what's, that's very interesting mm -hmm. you say that because I think this is a conversation that is not just taking place in London here, yep. but in Toronto, and you know, you're, you just recently left right. Toronto, but you know, whether it's a transit question, density question, how people move, um, is, is a question that Toronto continues to grapple with um, to this day. Um, but but what is, tell me about this forcing collision. Why is, why is this a good thing? I mean, if, you know, the example is, if I, if I woke up in the morning, had my breakfast, got in my car, drove to work, parked in the work parking lot, walked into the office, said hello to my coworkers, did my job, got back in my car, and drove home. Who am I interacting with every day? The exact same people, and most likely the people who share some kind of similar demographic or socioeconomic status as I do. Yeah. Right? Now, if I had to walk to work, and I leave 10 minutes later or 10 minutes earlier, all of a sudden, the person I'm interacting with on the street is a different person. And I'm, that interaction might be just looking in their eyes as they walk by, or it might be saying good morning. But all of a sudden, I've created a connection with someone I never would have had the opportunity to do that before. So now, in my neighborhood, if 
no sidewalks on my street. Yes. If I want to get somewhere, I have to walk in the middle of the road. Yeah. You're not going to connect with someone unless it's warm well, out and they're playing you. hockey. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and that's the thing. So how do we force this kinds of serendipity? Because the oh. best, the best interactions, in fact, some of the best friends I have had in my life yes. are people who I've met by accident. I've been sitting in a coffee shop. They said something I overheard and I say, hey, that's pretty great. And now we're friends. Or they're sitting on a bus and they're reading a book that I just finished reading. And I say, oh my God, that's great. You know, how do you force these kinds of moments of serendipity yeah. where there's something that connects you? Mm-hmm. And if you live in an isolationist bubble, you can't. And and sprawl isolate, yeah. isolates you. But I think it's also intellectual sprawl uh, mm-hmm. or, or social sprawl that we're dealing with. Because it comes back, I have two points here that I'll make. So the first one, it comes back to your initial discussion about who are we as a city. So sprawl... I mean, I understand the economic impacts of it, but I also understand that that could be a benefit for London. Because again, if we want to be that community where you can come and get an affordable house with a backyard and be able to raise your kids in that type of environment, that's not necessarily a bad thing. We do want to grow inwards and upwards, but I think we need to embrace the fact that there are different lifestyle choices for all kinds of people, and I don't know if we do a good job of that. But culturally or socially, we have these isolationist bubbles, as you mentioned. I remember, so I'm fairly involved with the arts community. I review a lot of theaters. I, I know a lot of people in the area. I remember during um, the Fringe Festival last year, there was a group that held a discussion, like, how do we get people more involved in the arts in London, or get people to the arts? They did that during the middle of the Fringe. There were like 15 <laughs> shows going on around them. And, and the di- level of disconnect was shocking to me because none of them were going to these theater productions. None of, they were talking about the very thing that they could have solved just by looking out the window and getting outside of their bubble. And when you go to a play in London, you see the same group of people. I I often made the comment about, I don't think there's any new money coming into London's arts community. It's It's recycled. So, you know, Samir may put on a play today. You're going to go see that. I'm going to put on a play next week. You're going to pay to see my play. And then when you put a play on stream, I'm going to come see yours. So that money's not, there's no new money coming in. It's just circling back to you. So we don't do a good job of breaking down those barriers and having those communities, whether they're physical, intellectual, emotional, spiritual, cultural, we don't do a good job of bridging those gaps and forcing those collisions and getting people to see that there are there is a vibrant community. And what that causes is a level of distrust. Um, there are some wonderful suburban communities in London. I remember being a part of it when I lived in Westminster. Yeah. I love my community, so yeah. I'm smiling really widely right now. But when I lived in Westminster, we had community groups. We had like a, a, an annual gathering in a local park. People didn't know about that in the rest of the, the, the city, and they would say, oh, there's no culture. You know, Suburbanites don't care about anything. They don't care about a community. And that's not true. There are yeah. so many great things going on. It's just not centered around this nexus of downtown. But how do we share that message? How do we get people to understand, no, there is a community in Westminster. What we're seeing in the Old East Village is incredible, the, the amount of pride and growth that they're taking. There are fundamental challenges that we have downtown in Old East Village. But there is a foundation of pride that people are building those next-level dreams on. So how do we share that? How do we connect those groups? And is that something that's realistic? We can't force behavior in a lot of ways. That's interesting. I, I think... You know, from where, where I sit, um, you know, so I live in uh, north of Bloor, just south of the 401 in Toronto, um, well east of Young Street. Yeah. Um, and, and, the, and the running joke with a lot of my friends who live uh, 
uh, you know, south of Bloor is that, you know, when are you going to move, you know, into the city you know, from, from, from Timmins or somewhere, you know, so yeah. the idea is cream lives out in the, in the sticks. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think it is, you know, so my brother lives in Whitby and they have an amazing neighborhood where literally their door is open and kids, have, you know, my, my sister-in-law will, after school sees, you know, which neighborhood kids are in her house yeah. that day that her son will bring along or... She'll know that uh, her son can go across the street and just jump into some other person's house. Um, their trick-or-treat night, you know, all the kids and families are all over the place. People know each other. Um, it's back in the day when you can go to your neighbor and ask to borrow uh, sugar. They know the servers at the, um, um, at the breakfast diner uh, across the street. They know the son. They know when his birthday is. It's very... You know, in my head, I'm thinking Whitby. There's no community in Whitby, <laughs> yep. but they have but they do. community there. Yep. Where where we live, we'd had we've had to take it upon ourselves to run an annual pumpkin parade, to run uh, an annual uh, park cleanup, yep. to, to to build. I think people need to build where they live their own community. And, and, and but it's a conscious effort. So yes. that everything that just you described in Whit- Whitby was done consciously. They yes. created spaces where they could gather. They, you know, made sure that the businesses, you know, went out of their way to know their customers. They made, you know, people made a conscious effort to get to know their neighbors. Yes. How do we make sure that that consciousness, and again, that's that's more than just a physical consciousness. Yeah. It's it, it reframes the way you see the world, right? How can you make sure that people are conscious in building a community? And I, I'll, I'll be honest, if we just moved to Byron, and I love it. Yeah. You know, I already know everyone that works in yeah. every store there, right? Okay. Um, okay. But again, they've been very conscious about saying, this is our community. We carved out a space. There are Byron flags and there are Byron newsletters and all of these kinds of things. And other communities in London have that. What we lack is those little points of connection where each of those communities talk to each other. And, you know, things like the Urban League are doing a good job of bringing them at least into the same room, making, you know, making sure that everyone knows about each other's events. But how do you actually make the membership, the people who aren't involved in the leadership of these communities, connect to each other? And that's, that's hard. That's the hardest part we have is that we do have a select group of people that are involved at a certain level, but there's no filtering of that information to the people who are living in these communities. Like there's no direct tie to say, like I look at my parents who are Montrealers by birth, they've always been very involved, they're very involved in their own community, but they may not be as aware of what's going on downtown or what's, you know, oh, I didn't know this play was going on or I didn't know this event was happening. I try to be the conduit to that, but how do we understand that there are different levels? There are people that are in their 20s in the south end of the city that have no idea and no interest in what's going on downtown. There are people that are seniors living in the Cherry Hill area who may be interested in some of the programming that's going on in other areas of the city, but there's no connection unless they actively go to it. And I think that's one of our failures as a city is that we expect everybody to be active participants, and more and more we expect them to be digitally active participants to come to the information as opposed to... and. I'm going to put on my little communications and content strategist hat. How do we get the right message to the right person in the way that's best for them? And we don't really do a good job of distributing that. Sometimes it's harder. I look at some of the, one of my biggest bugaboos is the whole engagement process that we've had around Rethink. There's a number that keeps going at about 15,000 people and that were involved. And I followed up on that with the person that was responsible for it. And I found that 
people were being counted multiple times. So I went to like five of those events, I was counted five times. Yeah, and so there's multiple, so I said, well, what's the real number here? And he said, yeah, probably around 7,000. And that's what we're basing a lot of our future growth on. That's fine, those are active, engaged people. I'm not discounting the great work that has been put into that, but there's a huge silent majority out there that isn't being reached the right way. You can put up a booth in a park that's not the same level of engagement as having a meeting downtown where you can question and answer. We don't do a good job of communicating with people outside of a very limited skill set or, or mindset and, and sort of digitally appreciative and actively engaged in the community. So I think that's, that I, don't, I don't have the answer. I'd probably make a lot of money if I had that answer, but how do we get, and, and I use the same groups all the time, how do we get the seniors at Cherry Hill who are a very large group, how do we get them more aware of what's going on? How do we get the people that are living out in Argyle, which is on the out, outskirts of the city and probably is a little bit more, I don't want to say economically depressed, but it's at a lower economic level than say North London or Byron or downtown would be. How do we get them aware of what's going on involved in the community? We don't really do a good job of speaking other people's languages. And it's not it's not just London. Obviously, yes. a lot of this can be extrapolated to kind of current geopolitics, right? Like, yep. <laughs> the, 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 the big issue in the U.S. right now is that we there's isolationist politics, yes. and that's led us to where we are right now. And if we had an answer, obviously, you could solve that. If we're, <laughs> if we're starting to see isolationist, and it's not just isolationist politics, but isolationist you know, community building, isolationist thinking, isolationist arts, whatever it is, if that happens, what does it mean 5, 10, 15 yes. years from now? And that's what I'm most worried about. Yeah. It's not just now. And I know that there are some pertinent debates that are happening now that we need to fix, but I think we can leverage those debates to actually fix the, the actual, like, the way we talk to each other yeah. rather than the issue of the debate. Yes. And then, you know, 10 to 15 years from now, if we fix those issues, kind of how we talk to each other, then you won't get this kind of same kind of isolation. Yeah. isolation. It is an attitudinal shift. It yeah. is a willingness to listen. It is a willingness to, as you say, to understand your position may not be reflective of your neighbors even. Um, and I think, and I'm probably guilty of this as well. Like we speak in the royal we, and I assume that my <laughs> experience is reflective of everybody that's been in the suburbs. That's not necessarily the case. I try to be more open-minded about understanding that there's different needs in different stages of life and that you know, I wrote five years ago about that millennials really are no different than what we were in our age group. You know, they're not buying cars, but it's not a matter that they don't want cars. It's just financially it wasn't realistic, and we're sure. seeing those numbers play out. Same thing with home ownership. You know, we can look at things in isolation, or we can try to learn from each other. And that's, yeah, I've written a post uh, about team building, and I firmly believe you need old, you need young, you need that combination of fresh, new, exciting ideas, and some people that have been there before that can sort of vet those ideas not to the point of being obstructionist about it, but to say this didn't work because X, Y, and Z, but let's take that and try ABC and see if we can get a better result. And I think if we can change our mindset around that, where we listen to people from different areas, where we listen to people from different generations and backgrounds, and say, how are we going to improve the total solution for everybody, not just a narrow focus towards one, I think that'll be better, but I, I, how do you do that? And that's the question. I, I mean, the first step is actually knowing who, who is in the city. Yeah. And I think uh, one of the gaps that we found is that we don't actually know who the people who live in the city are. You know, I, people are shocked when I tell them, well, this is something like 10% of 
London wasn't born here, right? Yeah. Like the people, the people who uh, weren't born in but this country. No census data. Or? I mean, there is, but I, the question is, who's gone through it? Yeah. Who's you know, if you go to a community organization, say who are the people in the community, they'll tell you anecdotally who shows up to events. Yes. But as anyone said in the N6K postal code bracket, you know, seven percent are. You know, have come from outside the city. Fifteen percent have this kind of socioeconomic status. Twelve percent don't own a car. Have we done these kinds of breakdowns? And I'm, I'm sure the city itself has done it. But has that kind of information been shared with yeah. the people who are actively engaging with the city, so that when we do do these kinds of engagement and when we speak, we know who we're not not just speaking on behalf, but who we're speaking to. Yes. And I don't know if that information exists. I couldn't tell you who lives in the city because I haven't looked at it either myself. And the challenge is, is that when we start relying on only those who show up to selected events, you get a skewing of attitudes and perspectives. And we, we've seen it in anything. You know, like if you've been involved in your kid's school board, you know that there's certain parents that are more active well, yes. than others. Their opinions generally aren't reflective of maybe all the students, but they're for certain reflective of what they want their child to have. And I feel we get that a lot where we look at it and the people that show up are very passionate about their level of interest, but that may not reflect across the broader group. I, I don't want to fault the people that show up because I think it's great. Like you want people to be interested and active, but I also don't want to discount the people who are not coming to community meetings because their kids have dance or you know they've got three kids, one's in baseball, one's in soccer, one's in you know, ballet. They're running around, they're exhausted. You know, we have to understand that there are different lifestyles and showing up isn't a, a measure of interest. Right. It's a measure of opportunity. I love that line, actually. <laughs> well, because it's, it's not just, again, like, it's not just, you know, I can't because my kids have something yeah. somewhere to go. It's a, I'm, I'm not literate, so I don't actually even know how to read a poster about this. Yeah. Or yeah. I don't feel comfortable speaking in front of crowds. Or... Um, I actually have no mobility. Like I, I'm, yeah. I'm confined to a certain thing. I can't get places. Yeah. Right. So how do you how do you start thinking about? And again, these are cerebrally we can think of them. But as yeah. we're planning something, are those the kinds of things that we think about consciously? Yeah. And it's it's just about being conscious about that debate and discussion. And that's why I I harp on the fact that we do a lot of our public consultations downtown, whether it's at the library or in a venue like this. But. You know, if you're doing a public participation meeting at, at City Hall at 4 o'clock, my previous job, I didn't have the luxury of just taking off and then coming and down. Exactly. And even if you're a downtown business, I know there's been a lot of uh, kerfuffle about the recent bus rapid transit expansion along Richmond. I know a few business owners in the area, and they said, we would have loved to be there, but I'm a sole proprietorship. I can't shut down my business to attend this meeting. That's money out of my pocket. I don't have that luxury or that gap. And you can say, well, if you care, you should show up. But that's a very privileged point of view to understand that you can do that as opposed to somebody who's saying, my margins are so slim, I have to stay open. And while I'm interested, this doesn't work. So how do we find better ways? And you say, you know, I'm on an accessibility committee, a couple of them actually, and with the city. Mobility is a huge issue. If you've got to have a, if you want to have people who rely on paratransit to come, we have to understand that they can't just pick up the phone and come. Sometimes it takes a day or two to arrange paratransit in the city to get them what places. Is that paratransit? Like wheel trans. Wheel trans, yeah. yeah. Okay, okay, okay. So, you know, a lot of times we've been dealing with it on the Accessibility Advisory Committee for the City of London. I sit on. People will, we've heard numerous stories where people are up at 7 in the morning trying to book a, a paratransit vehicle for a 9 a.m. Uh, pickup. They'll sit on that phone for an hour waiting to get, you know, somebody to answer, waiting to set that up. And if they miss that window, 
or if they find out at the last minute that they need to get somewhere, a lot of times they don't have that flexibility to do that. So how do we, how do we bring that message out to the people? How do we bring those opportunities and understanding that it's not just the people who have the luxury of either not working or being able to take time off work and shut down. I'm, I'm considering myself fantastically privileged because the company I work for, Digital Echidna, has been very supportive of any community events I do. And I'm allowed to go to a city council meeting and sit on a board during work hours. They support that because we believe in accessibility. I also know not everybody has that luxury. And so, again, that's why I said it's not about interest, it's about opportunity. There's a lot of people here that want to do some great things in the city, but they just can't leave work. Whether, you know, maybe they're working a retail job. They can't sign up for a city council committee that meets at three o'clock on a Tuesday. They may want to, but you know, their their job at Aldo won't let them you know, sure. do that. So that doesn't mean that they don't care. It's just they don't have the opportunity. And the fact that we're sitting here and speaking about this is is, is also a demonstration of privilege, right? Like, you know, a lot of people ask me, they ask me, "Oh, you're a person of color. You experience the city in a different way." And I'm like, "Yes." But I'm also a very privileged person of color, right? <laughs> like, I mean, I, there's a whole thing I've been reading about passing, right? Like, I pass as white in this city, yeah. right? Maybe not That's physically, but in, cerebrally and intellectually yeah. in the opportunities that I get, right? People listen to me, whereas they won't listen to someone that looks like me that might not have the same lived experience as yeah. I do, uh, right? And so what does that mean? And so what is the onus on someone like me to say, wait a minute, I am not your voice, right? <laughs> and that's hard for me to do yeah. because it's so easy for people to get caught in the trap of, yeah, we have, you know, a, per, a person of South Asian origin who's not who was born in East Africa on our board, so we're diverse, right? What does yeah. that mean for me to call out saying that's that, there's other kinds of diversity that needs yes. to be assessed here? Uh, and so always checking checking ourselves. And I know it's 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 you know trendy to say you have to check your privilege, right? <laughs> but the, the reality is there's work involved in that. Yeah. It's not just saying, okay, I'm going to check it. But then going and doing the work to say, now that I've understood my privilege, how do I bring in more people to the table because that seat shouldn't just be mine. But that's a issue we have with politics as a whole. Right. You know, the, my ideal situation is that when you elect somebody into a position, you're doing that as a representative of the entire community and they continue to represent that community. And I find that our political climate has been, we elect somebody and they get carte blanche to act in the way that they feel is best for the community with limited engagement or with only specific engagement. And we've accepted that for a long time. I think social media helps. Uh, I think that gives an opportunity for more um, easier forms of communication. It's easier to send off an email to fill out a form. I don't know if it's better, it's easier, um, but it gives us more access to our representatives. But again, it comes down to that fundamental change or that shift of how do we make sure that we make it easy for everybody. You know, Not just those who can tweet once in a while or not just those who have access to a computer, but to the people who maybe have a valid interest or a valid opinion, but are really not given the opportunity to connect with these people in a certain way. And conversely, how do we not overvalue the opinions that we hear on a regular basis just because of opportunity? The exciting thing is, and this is why I love London, is that if anyone can fix it, it's us. Yes. (laughs) You know what I mean? Because again, like, Toronto's too big to fix this, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? And and you know, um, you know, Huntsville might be able to fix it, but will will they be able to test it at scale? Yeah. Right. Okay. And that it, it just comes down to this: if anyone's going to fix it, it should be us. Yeah. Because if we're able to fix it, then other people can learn from it. And so this is where I see the potential. I don't know how to fix it. I, I never will. Yeah. But I want to support people who do have the ideas to try things to do it. Yeah. 
Well, I think when you look at bigger cities, like I'm from Montreal, you're from Toronto, you're from Toronto. Sorry about that. But, uh, <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not a Leafs fan, so it's okay. <laughs> but, you know, like in Montreal, we define ourselves by our communities that we live in. It's become, they're almost cities within themselves. You're from Westmount, you're from Outremont, you're from, you know, uh, Saint Laurent, you're like Bill Saint Laurent, you're from the West Island. You've segmented yourself, you're part of the greater Montreal area. But you're not necessarily a Montrealer. You're uh, from RDP, or you're from okay. Center South. In London, as you said, we're still that perfect side. You may be from Byron. I may be downtown, or I may have lived in Westminster or Pond Mills. But you're still London. Yeah, you know, there's not that diversification to the point of exclusion where we've got these boundaries. Just because we don't have the critical mass to do that, we're only a population of what 400,000, and then you know 550,000 if you consider the greater London area. So there's still we're still a small enough town to affect change and to listen to people and to, to create those bonds. Uh, and I don't think we're ever going to get to the point where we're a million, a million and a half. I don't see the, it could Maybe be. we shouldn't aspire that. But I don't think <laughs> yeah, we should. And, yeah. that's, and huh. that, that, again, when we started this, <laughs> we talked about a lack of a vision. And we don't know who we are. We know who we're not. And too often we judge ourselves by who we are. It's like, we're not Toronto. You know, so we need to do this so we can catch up. We're not Kitchener-Waterloo, so we need to have this so we can catch up. Instead of embracing, like, we are London, how do we maximize our strengths, minimize our weaknesses, but really showcase who we are as a city and grow, or not grow in that case, or just embrace who we are and maximize the potential we have as London, not as not Kitchener, not Waterloo, not Toronto. Yeah. Um, I, I want to talk about rank balance. As so an, do I. I, I, I <laughs> I'm as, not sure I agree with all of you. <laughs> as an idea, but um, this whole idea of, uh, you know, who is someone that lives in London. Yeah. So in Toronto, to sort of give you an example or something that I see. So in Toronto, the iconic uh, Honest Ed's building yes. uh, recently closed down. Uh, and there was an event headed up by uh, CSI uh, in Toronto to sort of celebrate um, that building uh, and Toronto, and uh, from that, a new sort of organization or foundation was created called, uh, I believe it was called Toronto for Everyone. Right. Um, and by all you know accounts, it seemed to have been very successful. But when I took a look at that, you know, as someone who lives in Scarborough, um, who very rarely went to that intersection where Honest Ed's was at, I, I took a look at that and I go, that that's not. Me, that's not my Toronto. My no. Toronto's not honest. Yep. I, I recognize it. Um, I, I, I can see the signs. I can point it out to people. <laughs> but that's not my Toronto. Yep. Uh, and as someone who lives in Scarborough and, and everyone in the city talks about the Scarborough subway and so on and so forth, um, you know, there is this sort of dichotomy of, of a vision of, of what is Toronto or what is this city when it comes to um, you know, celebrating a building in the core for the whole city, which is supposed to include, you know, Scarborough, Etobicoke, and so on and so forth. So I think it's very interesting that we have this, uh, you know, people that want to build a city to include everyone, but just because of where they are and, and what is happening, a lot of people uh, are left out either in the opinion of what Toronto is or what is good for their neighborhoods. Is that not Canada as a whole though? And when I look at it, like we, when you look yeah. at the U.S., so I remember back in the day we were, we talked about this a lot uh, in school and one of the 
things that have stuck with me is when you talk about what is a Canadian, like what's a defining, if you had to define a Canadian, what terms would you use? And the only thing we came up with was not American. Because <laughs> really, somebody in Montreal is different than somebody that's in Newfoundland, that is different than oh, somebody yeah. in BC. The cultures are so different that we have this, and it goes back to the whole idea of Canada was built on a cultural mosaic as opposed to a melting pot. You know, when sure, you sure. when you come to Canada, you're allowed to retain your culture. You live in certain areas, so like I said, that BC culture is completely different than what you're going to see in Manitoba than what you're going to see in Ontario. Even within Ontario, <laughs> the culture that you see in, yes. say, Sudbury yeah. is far different than what you see in Toronto than what you see here. So we, we how do you create a country or how do you create a cohesive unit wow. with such disparity? Whereas in the U.S., there's been that melting pot. You're an American. Yeah. I don't think it works. We're seeing the <laughs> challenges with it, but. That you know, that's that growth and that creation of a, a culture is, is a challenge, and I, I agree with you. How do you do that with Toronto? And you almost have to accept that Toronto is a mosaic of different cultures. It's almost like a patchwork quilt of different neighborhoods and cultures that come together as a whole, but are strengthened by its diversity. Imagine if we could solve that on a podcast. <laughs> easily, easily done. Yeah, easily done. Right? So ranked ballots. Okay. Um, you, you, you spoke about it here, and I know you've written a, a, an article on it Yes. Um, as well. So, so talk to us, you know, what is this idea of rank ballots, um, and, and why is there a discussion on why we should and should not have? Well, it's interesting that I don't even know if there's a discussion right now on why we shouldn't have, because it seems that... So, again, I mentioned I sit on the Accessibility Advisory Committee, and I, we had a presentation by the city on... The idea is supposed to be how do we explore options for voting, but it was very much presented as here's ranked ballots, here's why they're good, and here's what we should vote on. I don't know if that's a fair way to introduce the concept because it doesn't seem like an open discussion on what are our options. Is this the best solution or is the first pass the post what we have? Is that better? Um, my belief is I am in theory, in concept, I approve the idea of ranked ballots. I think if we had an informed, involved electorate, I think it's a great option. I think for London right now, and probably politics in general in Canada, I think it's a band-aid solution for a problem that doesn't address the core issue. The issue isn't about how we vote. It's a, the issue is why aren't people voting? Why do they feel disconnected from the process? And I, I'm just concerned, especially at a municipal level, like you can get away with it at the federal and provincial level because I think most people have a concept of what it means to be conservative, what it means to be liberal, what it means to be green, what it means to be MVP, what it means to be block. I think people can rank based on that. At a municipal level, you're asking for much more involvement in people understanding who the candidates are, what the diversity of their opinions are. And right now, we're not seeing people getting invested enough to vote for one person. So maybe I'm a little jaded, but I just don't see people taking the time to vote for more. And I know the counter-argument to that is, well, people don't have to vote. They don't have to rank. They don't have to choose three people. But I know lots of people that vote for wards and school trustees that have no idea. It's like, I like that name. I'm going to check that off. Yeah. So I worry that there's that eeny, meeny, miny, moism that we may not be solving the real problem. The harder question is, how do we get people more invested in politics and understanding that their vote matters? And it goes back to what I said earlier on this podcast about that disconnect. People feel their vote doesn't matter because when they vote, and I know I've felt that disconnect, if I vote for a candidate because I feel that person's the best candidate for my riding, and then I see them following party line exclusively without taking my ward, riding, areas of consideration in mind, I feel a disconnect. It's like you're not representing me and my community anymore. 
you're just a number as a part of a much larger pastiche of election, you know, electoral votes. So, rank. I guess the long story short is, yeah, rank ballots. I do support the concept. I just don't know if this is the right thing. And I think it's again that idea of let's do something. Let's show that we're doing something to make it better. I don't know if something is the right thing. Huh. What I'm, I'm curious is why <laughs> London has taken that up as a as something to do. Is it is uh, municipal engagement very low here? Uh, what was the last one? Thirty percent, I it think. Was, yeah, it was pretty low. Thirty percent. Yeah. I mean, but it's not lower than a lot of other nope. places in Canada. I, I. So my my thought of ranked ballots. Um, first, let me come with the caveat is that I, I'm not actually completely sold on ranked ballots as yeah. a as as a format either. And I've been doing some research on kind of all sorts of other kind of runoff balloting and all, yeah. all of these other methods. What I do believe is that we need to start thinking about electoral reform. Yeah. And I look at it not on the voting side, right? I, I mean, I understand that we want people to feel connected to the, to, their, to the people that they vote for, and I want more civic participation and stuff. What I'm looking at it from is from the people who run. Yeah. And I think from the people who run, electoral reform is definitely needed, particularly in the municipal level, because we currently have a system, the first-past-the-post system, which is actually even before first-past-the-post, it's first-past-to-sign-up. Yeah. Right? Huh. Yeah. And so what happens is I get... I know I'm going to run for politics, okay? And I'm going to run for my, my uh, for mayor, let's say. And because I occupy a certain space, whatever you want to call it, progressive, whatever it is, yeah. a whole bunch of other people who would occupy that space are going to step away and say, I'm not going to run against that person because they're my friend, I believe in what they say, yeah. and I don't want to split the vote. So all of a sudden you have people dropping out yeah. saying, I don't want to be Nader. <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay. I don't want to spoil this. Yeah. So you have less of a diversity of thought and opinion and of demographics that choose to run in the first place yeah. because of our first past the post system. Yeah. That's my struggle here. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if ranked ballot's gonna solve that. I think right now it's a solve to try and figure out how yes. to solve that. Yeah. And the problem right now is that we don't actually know if it will solve it. And we need somebody to step up and say well, let's be the guinea pig. And if it doesn't work, screw it. We'll try something else. Yeah. And if it does work, well, then other people can learn from us, you know. But right now, no one's been that guinea pig anywhere in Canada. Yeah. And Minneapolis. Is there a reason for that, though? Change is hard, <laughs> you know. Um, and 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 then it does come down to this disconnect, yeah. right? Kind of, you know, if I voted for top three people and my third place person got in, kind of like, eh. This, did I really see my voice being reflected? Yeah. So there's rank, ballot, best, yeah. rank balloting is 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 a practice. Maybe not a hundred percent. The the concept of electoral reform to ensure better diversity. That's what I want to push. Yeah. Huh. And right now, rank balloting is our only lever for that. <laughs> um, and what my what my thinking is is that London again because of yeah. its mid-sized city is maybe the right place to try it. So I'm not saying we move straight to ranked balloting and all of a sudden every time there's an election, there has to be a way of testing, of piloting, of assessing yeah. and saying, okay, we tried it. You know what? In fact, we didn't actually increase the diversity of our uh, people. Eh, maybe it's not for us. But what is that mechanism to test? And the problem is to test something you have to invest physically, you have to invest financially and you have to invest in, in voter education and all yeah, of that stuff. Exactly. So is it worth the investment? That's the question I'm still grappling with. Yeah. But I do think something needs to be done, and we might be the right people to try something. My concern with first past the post, fundamentally, I don't have an issue with first past the post. 
What I have a problem with is the mandate that it creates and how people interpret that mandate. If I was running for council or if I was running for um, you know, provincial or federal seat and only 30% of the electorate voted me in, it would be my obligation as a successful candidate to make sure that the other 70% voice is heard. Mm -hmm. And I think the challenge we have, especially with party politics, is that those voices aren't heard because of a failure of humanity, not necessarily a failure of the system. The candidates or the successful candidates have an obligation to re represent their riding in totality. Yeah. And what we've allowed to happen for too long is to say, well, only 30% of the electorate voted for you, so I'm only going to listen to that 30%. I don't think that's the right way to do it, but that's the system we've created and that's the system we've perpetuated. As you mentioned with the first uh, ranked ballots, I'm still concerned that you could get a lot of, you're creating almost an environment where it's a happy medium. It's like, well, you know, we don't have this polarization of view or these differing opinions. We're getting the second best choice in some cases. It's like, well, first place for all of us didn't work. Third place isn't up there. So it's like, eh, it's next on the list. Huh. So you're creating an environment where you're, and maybe that's not the case. Maybe you will get a clear differentiated group. I'm still not sure it solves the problem of diversity of participation because again, you're still going to have, like, if you have four people with similar ideologies in a first pass or a ranked ballot, that one person with the external ideology is going to get more votes. Maybe that pushes them above. You're still splitting the vote in a way, even though you rank it. Again, I'm not against the concept of it. I just don't know if it's. As it solves the problem. Does it solve the problem? Is it even addressing the problem we have, or is it just, again, let's do something to say we've done something? I'm not opposed to testing it out. I don't know if I want to test it out on our, you know, next municipal election. I think there's more time to discuss it. And there just seems to be this rush to do something now without maybe spending the time to invest to look into options, look into the costs, look into the cost benefit analysis. I don't want to be against it in, in concept. I just don't know in execution if it's the right solution. The struggle is that if there's any kind of right moment for electoral reform to happen, yep. it should be now. And uh, again, not to get into partisan politics, yep. but you know, our federal government ran on yes. the idea that we're going to do electoral reform. Yeah. And whether or not they're going to keep up that bargain, that, well, they've said that they're not at the moment. Yeah. That's a debate for another time. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, but we are again in London at this point where we have a federal government that believes in well says they believe in electoral reform. <laughs> yes. You have a provincial government who is interested in electoral reform, at yeah. least has marked that interest. And you have, again, this test market where you're like, well, we could try it. Yeah. And there's some rumblings and yeah. we're, we're the right size to try yeah. it, right? Like, well, sure. maybe Kitchener-Waterloo, us, there's a few places in Ontario that could do it, mm -hmm. but not many. Yes. So I, I, I understand not wanting to rush into things, yep. but I also understand that you know, in two years, the world could look very, very different. Yep. And if we don't do it now, yeah. we might have lost our chance for 35 years. Right? I, I, maybe I'm a pessimist. Maybe I don't have. <laughs> maybe I just don't have faith in the electorate. Um, I think I've said before, and it seems you know, I I am fine with only 30% of the people voting. I would rather have 30% of the people who are interested, engaged, and take the time to actually research their decision casting a ballot as opposed to somebody who just shows up and says I like the color blue or I think I recognize that name my issue with uh, ranked balloting is that it doesn't do anything to guarantee an informed vote No, it guarantees a vote but not necessarily an informed vote and you know that's still 
I'm worried that it creates an additional barrier because although we do say that people don't have to rank ballots, we do know human nature is people are going to, sure. if they get three choices, they're going to make three choices. Are those other two as well informed? Maybe, maybe not. Um, I may sound horribly pretentious here and I, I don't care. I firmly don't believe that a lot of people care about elections. They just show up. I don't think they put the time and effort. Um, you know, we look at voting as a right, but it is a responsibility, and I don't think people take that responsibility seriously enough. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've had friends and colleagues who have said outlandish things about elections because that's what they've heard from somebody else, and that's why they're not voting for that person. It's got nothing to do with first-hand research. So until, I guess my concern is it's a great idea, but it doesn't guarantee a better quality of vote. So how do we guarantee that? And I think that's a societal issue. I think that's a fundamental going back to elementary school where we start teaching people the importance of voting, the importance and how to vote, how to research, how to contact people who are running, how to get questions asked, and how to understand political platforms. How to run, how to, run. <laughs> how to advocate, how to lobby. These are yeah. things we don't teach in civics classes. Yes. No. In civics classes. Well, I mean, they, 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 did, they, they used yeah. to have civics There's classes. There's one in high school, yeah. <laughs> you know? But that's, yeah, so we don't teach, yeah. again, that's why I think it's, it's in, in very many ways, it's building a really nice facade, but the foundation of our electoral process is so weak that no matter what we build, it's still going to crumble because we don't have that foundation of informed, engaged, inspired electorates. I love that we're looking at from like the supply side and the demand side. <laughs> and, like at some point they're gonna meet. <laughs> the curves always meet. <laughs> when, when they meet is the, is the issue. Um, totally different direction with this. Um, Samir, you've always had a, a, a love of writing, like physically writing, uh, and libraries, and I sort of see it. And, and I see a connection there. Um, I, mean, I don't know if the connection is words or written words, but uh, tell me, tell me about this this sort of love and fascination you have. Yeah, and and I'm not gonna I'm gonna I'm not gonna speak for Jay, but I, I have a feeling that there's gonna be some kind of similarity here. But it's the idea of the written word helps you process the world, right? And, and there are various ways of processing it. Sometimes it's taking a whole bunch of information that I know and then trying to articulate that. And sometimes it's getting more information, but getting it through that written word. And so I really find writing specifically as a way of processing. Yeah. So writing isn't art for me. Writing isn't, uh, isn't, isn't work in the sense of like, I, you know, I, I don't work as a journalist, right? Yeah. Like it's not for me. For me, writing is a way to process, yeah. right? And if I, if, if I have something that I grapple with, I need to put it on paper. Now, for me, you know, a lot of that's been kind of very tactile, right? So I spend way too much money on pens. <laughs> and I'm in the library at least three times a week, right? Yeah. Because there's something about that tactile nature. But I've always been also someone who responds more to textural stuff than to audio or to visual stuff. Huh. Right? So it's, that's the kind of idea of if I want to process the world, I need to have a way to process it. And for me, it's through words. And it's not the spoken word, but it's the written word. Yeah, and that's 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 why writing appeals to me, and that's why reading what other people uh, write appeals to me. Because what I see when they write is not just what they've written, but the process behind what they've written and what they're trying to work out while they're writing. Wow, how many letters do you figure you write a uh, a month? A month? Fifty? Wow, <laughs> that's amazing. But it's it's also that idea is I can send off an email and it's instantaneous. And boom, and I don't yeah. have to think about it. Yeah. But if I'm pulling out a fountain pen yeah. and I'm pulling out a nice piece of paper, yeah. 
I have one piece of paper. I could put more, but I have one piece of paper. I have to process what I'm going to say. I have to prioritize what's important to share with someone. And then I actually have to write it out. So it's a physical thing. So that entire process of sending someone a letter is a conscious communication. Whereas in many cases, an email is like, hey, do you mind meeting up for coffee sometime? You know? yeah. Whereas if I want to write a letter to someone and say, you want to meet up for coffee, I have to plan it three months in advance. Yeah. Right? So it's a... And of course, I, I use other, I mean, we, we direct message. That's how yeah, we met yes. this, right? But the idea is, what is conscious communication? And for me, that is writing something on paper. And what is kind of the process of daily communication that's not process-oriented, but it's just kind of functional. Yeah, yeah. And, and one of the things that they're trying in, uh, in Toronto is these uh, librarian-free libraries. Oh, uh, interesting. You know, and, and obviously, it, it has nothing to do with how people use libraries it all has to do with cost cutting yeah. um, tell, tell me why are libraries important to, to communities to cities libraries libraries are fascinating and, and because they're not they're not places where you get books right um, they are de facto community centers yes. where, that, that are at, at the nexus of community and well, we don't use them effectively like that anymore. But I think, if you think about it, I, I read an article recently. It was, um, I don't know if I can swear on your, or your podcast, <laughs> but it was called Go to Fuck to the Library. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, and, and the reason, reason it was called that is it basically someone writing saying, hey, you, don't, you can't pay for your books for school? Go to the library. Yeah. Yeah. You don't know how to research something? There's a librarian there. Go there. You're, Except in Toronto. <laughs> well, yes, <sir. laughs> You're kind of lonely? Go to the library. There'll be someone yeah. to talk to. Yeah. You know, you just need a place to work. Wi-Fi in most libraries? Pretty good. Yes. Yeah. You know, yes. you need to take a nap and your roommates are really annoying? Go to the library, right? It's a, the library acts as this place where you can accomplish basically a suite of things that we've now taken on to kind of like purchasing ourselves. Buy your own books. Set up your own Wi-Fi. It's this shared resource. It's like the Toronto Tool Library or like the... Ah. Or like the kitchen libraries that they're doing nowadays, yeah. right? Not everyone needs to own a Vitamix, right? Because when I need it, I, there's a place for me to get it. So not everyone needs to have all the infrastructure that a library has. Not everyone needs to have a personal researcher. But a librarian is that person. Uh -huh. yeah. And it's the idea of shared resources. And that that's what build communities. Because it's not mine. It's not yours. It's ours. So from just a symbolic point of view, the library is really important because it's shared and it's owned. Interesting. Yeah. It really is at the heart of every community and when we get back to you know looking back when we were talking about how do we disseminate information mm -hmm. there's another great area to do it where we can use libraries as those cultural and social touch points where we can gather people together in those regions and get information i know uh creative age london is something that really does use the library system very effectively because their demographic is much more comfortable going to the library I feel, I fear we're losing that in a lot of ways with the younger generation because of the immediacy of having the world at your fingertips, yeah. literally in a phone, any information you want. Like there's no going back for the Encyclopedia Britannica and searching things up in the library. Anything you need is on Wikipedia in your hand. So we're losing that sort of cultural touch point, but there is an opportunity for using libraries. So really, it's a, it's a rethink of, of how, of, of what we think of libraries. If the library isn't the repository of hard information what what role does it actually play? Yeah, yeah does it play a space for the debate of that information does it a place uh play a place of kind of sanctuary what, what is the library yeah. is the library the church of our generation like you know uh, what i mean kind of thing yeah. starting to starting to explore and i 
I'm not sure if getting rid of librarians is that. No. Because <laughs> we still need somebody to facilitate those conversations. And right. I, I love the idea of it being the church of our generation. The communities that we grew up in very much were centered around a church up until probably, what, 1970, 1980 maybe, where uh -huh. there was a very strong church organization in every single community. We've moved away from that in a lot of ways. Some cultures embrace it more than others. That's sure. great. And you see how tight those cultures are. I think, by and large, as a community, we've lost that touch point. We've lost that shared space. We've lost that thing where I can every week go and see my neighbor or see somebody that's two blocks over, have a little conversation, chat, build that sense of community. Now we're very much, even though we're more connected than ever, we tend to be more isolated than ever because we're, we're within our own screens. We're within our, our laptops and our phones. We're not doing the face-to-face, -face, and I think libraries can be that. I don't know if people will embrace that. I hope they will. And I see some great programming out of London's library. They've done some fantastic work with uh, bringing in speakers, bringing in films, having community events. Um, if I can plug a kid in a little bit, yeah. we're working with them on something called uh, One Book, One London. And it's a, a community event where we're trying to get all of London together reading one book. And we've developed a, a digital solution that allows you to plot. It's uh, the story's about a woman, Etta, who's walking from, um, it's terrible that I should know this off the top of my head, but <laughs> I believe from the Saskatchewan to, she wants to see the ocean, so she's walking to the East Coast. Okay. And so we're encouraging people to read the book, to actively walk, you know, use your Fitbits or to count your steps and plot them on a digital tool. So one book, one London, or walk one London as well, and so you can follow along with that. That's a great way to integrate the community into these events and try to share those experiences that somebody that lives in Byron and somebody that lives in uh, Argyle. They may never see each other on a day-to-day -day basis, but they're sharing an experience. And that's the, that's the kind of thing a library can do that many other public institutions yeah. cannot do. Yeah. Right? Because they're always part of a network. And I, you know, shout out to Toronto Reference Library for, for rethinking the library as well. Putting in maker spaces and 3D yeah. printers and coding classes and stuff like that. Again, creating a shared space, shared resources for people to say, I don't need to have this myself. The community can own this yeah. Yeah. and we can use it to make the community better. Right? And so, libraries, you know, for me, libraries have always been the place where I get books. Yeah. yeah. But what is, what is a library going to be to my children, yes. right? Is it the place they're going to get books? Or is it the place that they're going to go and say, oh, I, got, I, I created this really cool prototype. I'm going to go print it out on their 3D printer. Or, yeah, are we sharing know. information now or are we sharing experiences? And I think really when we get to the fundamental of why I write, you know, part of it is because exactly as Samir said, I, to me it's the foundation of my opinions and it's the foundation of my thoughts. I can put them down on paper or on screen and I, I coalesce my ideas and I'm able to present them better. But the second part of that and what I do through my freelance, through my work at Echidna, it really is about telling stories and that's what I love about it. I love if nobody knew who I was, that's yeah. fine. If I can share other people's stories effectively, that's what I really enjoy doing. And I think that's what libraries come down to. It's like, how do we share those experiences? How do we share those stories? I may never set, well, that's not a good example because I have, but I, in general, may never set foot into a mosque. But I can go to a library, have somebody do a presentation or do something culturally so I can learn about what that is. And it breaks down barriers. One of the greatest things I thought they ever did in Quebec was they got rid of the whole uh, Catholic and public school system. It's English-French, so that creates its own diversity, that's whatever. <laughs> but 
the, the, the school system has a course called uh, Mahral. So basically what it is is they talk about all the religions. And I think that's an awesome thing that we should be doing more often in all of our so teaching things. So that when a, you know, a kid comes in wearing a hijab, it's not strange. The, the, you know, the students understand what that means. It's not something that's foreign to them. They can appreciate what that is. So if we can, I think libraries can help to do that, to demystify some of the differences. You know, I'm not saying we all have to be the same, but we can appreciate what the difference is, why they are there. And I think libraries become that shared space where we can share stories and share experiences and try to understand each other a little bit better. Someone, someone uh, tweeted the other day about a, a co-working facility that was bringing in a whole bunch of like reference guides and textbooks and stuff for people. And someone just said, at what point do co-worker co-working facilities realize they're reinventing libraries? Yeah. Right? <laughs> so, so, you know, we might think that this is like this whole trend to like, congregating and working in one yep. space and sharing spaces and all of that is new but it's not right it, it goes back to Rockefeller and his libraries yeah. right this, we've been doing this for hundreds of years yeah right um, let's not get rid of the way we did it before if it's still working right yeah. you know and of, of course co-working facilities fill another kind of niche need but let's not prize one over the other when you know I don't have to pay to go to the library, right? Yeah, it's yeah. public infrastructure, right? Uh, <laughs> and at one point, is innovation just a repurposing of an old idea? And right. I think we see that a lot, that mm. we talk about innovation when it really isn't. It's just a new twist on something we've done for hundreds of years. And so, again, that comes down to learning from our past and embracing the past and having that diversity of age, of experience, of cultural backgrounds. That's, again, where libraries can come in because you can do that and have those people come in Vet your experience, vet your ideas against other ideas, and that's how we get a better community. Nice. We still have time? I do, yeah. Yeah? Um, so, you wrote about a while ago music, music and ownership. Oh, yeah, wow. That was a while ago, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what's, tell me about that. So, I, I read a, a, an amazing article, uh, I think it was Stephen Inskeep, I, I'm, I'm not quite sure who it was. But it was from someone who works in the music industry as a critic and was talking about how streaming services has made music less important to us because there's no physical artifact that we have to interact with. And I, I thought, great points, very, very salient, very valid that, that the physical ownership, the idea of going to buy something, all of that is really important um, to making a personal connection with music. But what bothered me about that was because... It's, it's not inclusive. And so a lot of what I've been starting to think about is how are we increasing access to people who didn't have access before? And by going to a record store and buying a record and coming home and having a record player to play it on, yeah. that is not an inclusive act. Uh -huh. So even though it is important for us to own, and I was thinking about this in general, like you know, streaming and cloud and all of that, people say it's, you know, this, it's a tech utopia, but it's not. It's also an inclusionary utopia. Yeah. Because nowadays, huh. instead of having to purchase my own thing, I can have shared resources. Now, in the case of Spotify, sure, I have to pay $15 a month for it or whatever it is. But what people don't also realize is that Hoopla, which is provided free with your London Public Library card, yeah. has, I mean, I'm listening to the Frank Ocean album right now on there, right? It's free. I get to download it. It's a shared resource. It's music that's now accessible to someone that didn't have the money to go and spend $9.99 on, on iTunes on it, right? They have a phone because they use it for work or something like that. Now they have access to these kinds of things. So it's not just music. What has the move from the physical world meant for inclusion? And uh, it, it comes down to these kinds of ideas of, you know, not everyone can come down to a, a meeting at yeah. 4 o'clock at City Hall, 
So what are the new vectors that we can use to get them involved in these decisions? And it's not screaming out loud on Twitter, but there's, <laughs> there's other ways we can try and tease out yeah. people's thoughts, people's ideas, and include people that weren't included before because there was some kind of barrier. Whether that barrier was cost, whether that barrier was mobility, whether that barrier was access. Streaming services, in one example, has made music more accessible. It might not have the same resonance and feeling of ownership and this is mine, but it has also made it open to other people who didn't have it. That that's a, really that's really a great point. Yeah. And that's, I've always wondered if there's a lack of appreciation because of that ownership issue. And so I think you know, we may be expanding, so in a good way we're expanding opportunity for people to access the information. In a bad way, I think, you know, if you're saying why does it matter less, I think it's because of that lack of ownership. Like, there is something about having a possession. There is something about whether it's art, whether it's books. Like I am horrible. Like I have bookshelves upon bookshelves upon bookshelves uh, at home because I like that. I like the physical presence of a I book. I bet you got a lot of books at home somewhere. A few. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We've been purging, but yeah. See, I can't purge. I thought about it, but it's like no. I you know I just and my mom did the same thing. She purged a lot of her books and regrets it to this day. Yeah. And I like the physical ownership of it. I like being able to walk by. There's a comfort in that. I've gone back to old record collections now, even CDs. I'm buying CDs again because I can stream it, but I like having, and I guess my car is old enough, I still have a CD player. Right? So, so, but I like having physical media, but I also understand that is a luxury I have because I can afford to do that. And I mean, you opened my eyes right there. I never even thought about the expansion of it, I never thought right? of it as, a, as an inclusive thing. But no. I think it's a great way to frame it. It is an inclusive thing and it does give an opportunity. I think though, in general, we, <laughs> Maybe maybe I'm old. Maybe, maybe you know, I'm getting off my lawn here. But, you know, I think we take for granted, or many people take for granted, the level of information. We don't appreciate the information we have anymore because it's so accessible. It's so easy to get. You know, you look at Wikipedia or Google. You know, when I was younger, if somebody asked a question, you didn't know the answer. You didn't know the answer for a long time until you figured yeah, yeah. out to look it up. Now, you can be at a bar. It's like, oh, who uh, was that guy? And you just... There you go. You got the information in seconds. So the the pursuit and acquisition of knowledge was so much more challenging at a time that you appreciate the effort that went into it. And so there's more of a sense of ownership to it. I don't know if that makes it better. I think it, it makes it resonate more internally when you actually have to put some effort into getting something. But again, from an accessibility perspective, I think it's great that the information is open to everybody. And we're demystifying information. We're de you know, de-escalating the barriers that are needed to get information, which previously, you know, you could only get certain things if you went to university or college. But now people from all walks of life, from all economic levels, they may not get a paper degree out of it, but if they want to go to the library and go online and Google, you know, thermodynamics, they can learn the basics of thermodynamics on, you know, on a computer. And, and they don't amazing. even have to go to the library anymore, which no, is, no, which yeah. is the exciting part, because if you're working from eight to eight, Yep. You know, the library's closed, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, but now you have all of these ways of accessing resources either from the library or elsewhere that will help you fill that gap that you didn't yeah. have before. Yeah. That's an awesome way of looking at it. Yeah. I just realized you were wearing a Prince t-shirt. Yeah, I yeah. love that shirt. Talking. I was, was so going to remark on it. Yeah. <laughs> so, a little story about this. I wore this on the day he died, not really? knowing he had died. I was just like, oh, it's in the rotation. I'm going to put it on. And yeah. then, so at noon, I go to a coffee shop. It's like, oh, did you buy that today because he died? Like, hey, that would be really fast. But no. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. That was, it, was, it was a weird feeling. So, I mean, last year, you know, everyone talked about it. It was the year that, like, it seemed like 
everyone's heroes. Yeah. And I use that in, 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 in air quotes. Yeah. Um, you know, passed away. Um, we're just getting old. That's what it is. That's what yeah. it is. <laughs> yeah. wrong, wrong, the people wrong, from wrong. our sort of cultural generation. area. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but it, it was interesting. You know, interesting is the wrong word, but. I come out of a meeting the day the day Prince died, and, and I go back to my computer. And one of the things I have on is is Tweet Deck or Hoot Suite, yeah. it's a stream of information. And it said that Twin Prince had passed away, and I'm like, what? I'm like that's something yeah. he's too young. How do you? Yeah. Uh, that and it was, and David Bowie had passed on earlier in yep. the year, um, and a bunch of other people. But for the rest of the day, I couldn't concentrate. And it was a weird feeling yeah. because I wasn't a massive uh, Prince fan, um, but you know the album uh, Purple Rain, <coughs> the yep. movie Purple Rain, yep. and just that I, I think I was you know at that time in my life that was he was just a superstar, yep. um, and just all of his music you know since then or even earlier uh, before. Um, and one of the conversations I had with a few people, I said, you know, who is the person for you? Um, you know, not you know your 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 parents or best friend, but you know who is that uh, that icon for yeah. you that you know if and when they do pass on will stop you in your tracks. And I'm curious, you know, you know who is it for you guys? Like, for, I'll, I'll I'll start off. Yeah. For me, it's it's Neil Young. Okay. Um, and one of the things that really uh, to this day attracts me to him is his don't give a fuck attitude where you know he doesn't stay on one side of the political spectrum um, he doesn't stay in, in one musical genre um, he really and he doesn't fly off the seat of his pants he really no. in the moment and really what inspires him what angers him uh, what upsets him what brings him joy and whether it's in music uh, or film, or his projects with with music, or um, uh, battery-powered cars, or whatever the case may be, he just goes out there and does it because to him it's important. Yeah. And so I think for me, you know, when when he does pass away, I will regret every concert I could have gone to that I yeah. didn't go to, um, and I'll start to recollect his yeah. music all over again. Prince was funny about that way with me because I think just two months before he died, there was a concert in Toronto. Yeah. And I thought about it, and I looked at the price, and I just couldn't justify it. And I think I had a work thing, so I was like, ah, next time. And it just didn't happen. Um, I come from it a different perspective, because I know when Prince died, people know I'm a fan. And they're yeah. oh, are you upset about it? And I was like, well, I didn't know the guy. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I, it's, not like a, it's not like it's a family member, yeah. or, you know, I was more upset when my cat died. Yeah. Um, so I, it, was, it was something to note. I think... One of the luxuries I've had is because I've done a lot of journalism work in my career. I still freelance, especially, I guess, hockey. I was a big hockey fan growing up. I had my heroes. Most of them died. You know, Maurice Richard, even though I wasn't old enough to see him play, growing up in Montreal, it's kind of ingrained in sure, me. Sure, sure. So when he died, I went to his funeral uh, wow. in Montreal. And, uh, or they had a visitation at the forum. Um, you know, most, actually, when I think about it, Michael Jackson was a big fan, and I fully admit that I'm a hypocrite when I listen to Michael Jackson, because <laughs> I can't stand Chris Brown for what he's done. Fair. <laughs> so, you know, Fair. that starts a whole new discussion about how do we yes. separate the art from the artist. But I've met enough hockey players who have gone on to incredible success. I've interviewed them, I've wow. you know, spoken to them, 
you know, like I've interviewed Carey Price. I've interviewed, um, basically you can run down the NHL top scorers. Yeah. And because of my work with Hockey Future when it was around, I had a chance to talk to them in junior and follow up with them. So I learned very quickly that these are just regular people. So I lost the hero worship. I've done a lot, you know, when I was working at the Gazette, did a lot of interviews with political people. So again, they're just people, you know, you can have the conversation. There's no, it demystified that idea of celebrity to me. So I don't get overwhelmed with that anymore. So I don't really have that attachment. There are touch points in my life. You know, when Michael Jackson died, that felt like a part of my youth had passed. Same thing with Prince. You know, when he passed away, a part of my youth had passed. Um, when Robertson Davies died, you know, that's one of my literary heroes. I love the Deptford trilogy. I will recommend that to anybody over any other book in the world. When he died, it was like, oh, that, that's sad. But yeah. there's never been anything really that it's going to stop me. Yeah. Even Michael Jackson. Like, I was driving to Montreal, and they put a, they had a couple of Michael Jackson songs on the radio. And I had said to my ex-wife, I said, oh, I wonder if he died today. And the next thing, Michael Jackson died. It's like, <laughs> I'm just not going to say a word anymore. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I, no, think. I, I, I think that idea of kind of like the hero worship is is, is point taken. Um, what what I find is that the the things I will I miss is when someone or someone's work becomes a part of my identity. Yes. Oh. Right. And so um, I'm I'm not going to say any anything new here, but I was a diehard Prince fan. I've seen yeah. him live 13 times. Oh, wow. I've traveled to Paisley Park. I've like. Prince was my thing, right? So, like, if you had asked me this last year, it would have been Prince, right? Um, uh, And coming back to that writing thing, it was like, you know, the day it happened, I took the day off work. Like, I just just knew there wasn't going to happen anything. And it took me a few hours, and I I have, you know, Prince fans are pretty tight-knit community, so we know a lot of them. And so I sat down and I wrote letters to a whole bunch of them, saying, this is how I feel right now. Not because Prince died, but because some part of who I am passed away, yeah. right? A lot of who I define myself as was based on his work. Huh. Um, a lot of my experiences were based on that. And it was that kind of idea of that, you know, obviously I miss his passing. Yeah. I miss his, uh, his I, you know, the idea that he'll never be able to produce that work again. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, I missed that last concert in Toronto that I'm like, oh, I'll see him next time he's around. Yeah. I've seen him so yeah. many times, right? Yeah. I, you know, yeah. um, but for me, what, what I what I was really shaken by was that who am I now that yeah. he's gone? Oh. And that's what, I don't think there is anyone else like that out there for me um, because I haven't really defined myself yeah. around that. Um, and I, I, so I struggle to answer your question. That's good. Um, but then there's also this idea of that kind of like, I mean, you grow up in a family where, you know, there's health issues around yes, all the yeah. time. Yes. Pe- people As dying. Older, people yeah. dying is not new for me. No. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, you know, we went to funerals in elementary school. It's it's something that yeah. happens. Um, and then you know, in, in the Smiley community as well, because we're very tight knit. Yeah. Even if it's not someone you're related to, it's some. You still go, and you're part yes. of this idea. So death is not an end. Sure. So grappling with that, um, I think I've since Prince passing away has been really good for me to understand that like it's okay that if you identify with someone but then passing away doesn't mean you have to stop identifying with them and I think there's two things here and one of the things that bothered me not so much with the Prince stuff although it was there but you know when Carrie Fisher died when all these people died Mm. and I see all these mass outpourings of sadness from people and what struck me about is that I'm seeing more emotion from these people than I do let's say when they have a family member die or and so I, I had a disconnect with that. 
And it's just like, you know what, these are people, you know, I'm a big Star Wars fan. You know, yeah. I, when Carrie Fisher died, it's like, oh, that, that's too bad. But that was all it was. It wasn't like I felt some deep resonance. Yeah. When Prince died, again, it was sad, but then I thought about it. And there's that's representative of a certain period of time for uh-huh. me. You know, I, I was a Prince fan, but then for a long time, I wasn't. Not, not that I wasn't. I was a, a, a fan at a certain time, and I think that's more what it was. It was a loss of a certain period of my life. Yeah. yeah. I look at them. I'm a big Sloan fan. Okay. And what I love what they're doing now, and I say I'm a Sloan fan, and I hate saying that, not because I'm embarrassed for being a Sloan fan, but <laughs> I'm just not a fan of everything they've ever done. I'm a Sloan fan of a certain period of time in the 90s. There are five, four or five albums that really resonate with me. Then as I got older, I stopped listening. Yeah. You know, you just, they, I read a story or a study once where they say after 30, you just stop caring about new music for the most part. It's much harder for you to embrace it because it's not fundamental to who you are. And I think that's where you're talking about identity. So what Sloan's been doing is they're doing concerts where they'll play an album from beginning to end. So a few years ago, they did the 20th anniversary of Twice Removed. That's my wheelhouse. They did a recent one with one chord to another. Again, that's my wheelhouse. That's where I grew up listening to them. And I appreciate that. If I went to another concert where they're playing all new stuff, I wouldn't have that same resonance. So to tie this back into the death aspect, it it just really does represent a death of a moment of time. Like Michael Jackson, when he passed, I'm mourning Thriller and Bad Michael Jackson and Off the Wall and Jackson 5. I'm not mourning like Dangerous and Beyond Michael Jackson because I just didn't care. Same thing with Prince, you know, like there's a whole bunch of albums there. I appreciate certain songs at the end, but I wasn't mourning the loss of Mirror Ball. I wasn't mourning the loss of Third Eye Girl. I was, you know, I was mourning the loss of Purify Yourself in the Waters of Lake Minnetonka Prince. So, it, it's more a period of my time than, than the actual person. Yeah. Thanks for this, guys. Oh, thank I have you. Have it. Have it here. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs>